0: I will not be drawn on any subject, save the weather. It's a lovely day. It's looking
1: like a comfortable victory for the Conservative Party and the prospect of our first ever woman prime minister. So what do we know about Margaret... That's fashion. the
2: last thing this country needs. What? Two women running the shop.
3: Perhaps that's precisely what this country needs. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman and I'm very excited to be back with a new season of the podcast and, of course, with the brand new season of the Netflix original series, The Crown. This show will follow the fourth season of The Crown, episode by episode, taking you behind the scenes, speaking with many of the talented people involved, and diving deep into the stories. At the end of season three, we left Queen Elizabeth alone in her gilded carriage on the way to the Silver Jubilee in 1977. Her sister, Princess Margaret, had reached rock bottom, and Elizabeth's relationship with Prince Charles was fractured after the family came between him and the woman he loves. Off screen, since then, it's been announced that the show will extend to season six, and some of the new cast members have been announced. We'll hear more about that later on in the series. On to season four, and I know you've been just as excited as me about what's to come in this season, especially the introduction of one particular princess. But let's get started. Season four, episode one, titled Goldstick. It's 1979, and Elizabeth is excited that Thatcher is swept into power with a landslide victory to become Britain's first female prime minister. Meanwhile, despite Lord Mountbatten's encouragement, Prince Charles refuses to settle down, growing distant from the family. But when Mountbatten, whose ceremonial position is that of gold stick in waiting, is assassinated by the IRA, Charles finally takes his great-uncle's advice and turns his attention to the young Lady Diana Spencer. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode. So if you haven't watched episode one yet, I suggest you do it now or very soon. Coming up later, we'll hear from Josh O'Connor and Tobias Menzies, who play Prince Charles and Prince Philip on the show.
4: Me and your dad just watched <laughs> episode three. Okay, I like. I could set an alarm. Fifty minutes later, <laughs> did this happen? <laughs> we'll
3: also hear from head of research Annie Salzberger on Thatcher and why Mountbatten was a target
5: for the IRA. Why are her policies so divisive, and why does she not back down? There's something just fascinating about that. You know, mm. politics in general tends to be more consensus than 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 what she represents, mm. and. And she comes in and shakes up this Tory party and kind of rips out the core values. But first, I spoke with show creator and writer Peter Morgan at his
3: home in London. I asked Peter where we find Queen Elizabeth at the start of season four.
1: The funny thing, I mean, I know it should be about where she is, but actually I tend in the great long sausage (laughs) that is the crown to chop it up into moments of time shaped by the politicians. And so in the sprawl of the second half of the 20th century, season four spans Thatcher's reign from sort of 79 to 90. So we pick it up with Margaret Thatcher just winning the election, becoming prime minister.
0: Never count our chickens before they hatch, and we don't count number ten Downing
2: Street before it's thatched. <laughs> <laughs> what we're seeing now is history in the making.
3: Let's talk about Thatcher because she's a larger-than-life character in in history. Yeah, and she's introduced in this this series and in this episode. What did you want to present? in terms of your Thatcher, what was, who was the Thatcher that you wanted to, to present?
1: All of our lives were slightly shaped by Thatcher and she was somebody who aroused the most extraordinarily strong responses. What is also fair to say is that she was clearly a brilliant politician, a formidable human being. I think when you look back on her, it's an extraordinary thing that happened. She was a bomb that went off in, in British post-war society and... She's such an interesting case because she did things that make her a feminist icon, and yet she had absolutely no time or regard for women mm-hmm. in, in in a professional way. So she was anything but a sister. And yet the way in which she overcame boys' club patronising sort of contempt, really, a great deal of her political challenges came from men within her own cabinet, older men within her own cabinet, who both were contemptuous of her gender and of her background. And her ability to see them off makes her a feminist heroine, I think. And yet her attitude to women, you know, she, no sooner would she be a feminist heroine than she would scuttle back to make sure she was ironing her husband's shirt or <laughs> make, bringing him breakfast in bed. and She was running a household... In very modest circumstances, above Downing Street, and you know, there were those two words, Mrs. Thatcher. And if you if you went anywhere in the world, and I remember in 1982, I spent a lot of time in the Middle East, actually, or the Near East. I was in Israel and and in Palestine and and Egypt, and Margaret Thatcher was those two words. She defined Englishness. She certainly. Um, outshone the Queen in terms of instant celebrity on the global scale that represented Britain now. You know, Margaret Thatcher, the first, certainly in the UK, the first really, really dynamic woman prime minister. So I suppose I've come at her not to do a revisionist take, not at all, but I tried to make sure that my take had moved on a little bit from the take I had of her as a, as a student. <laughs> <laughs>
3: Jillian is just extraordinary as, as Thatcher. Is yeah. that I mean, you know, in terms of casting Jillian as Thatcher, what point did you know she was she was going to be her, and that you wanted her to be her?
1: Because Gillian and I were together already. You know, uh, I had had the idea a couple of years before this, and I could see it quite quickly the similarity. Uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> It's Ooh, then, to-
3: that's not. Good. No, <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean the blue eyes, the the strength of character, mm-hmm. the you know, Gillian likes to work, and she has a propulsive energy to her, and she's fierce, and so I could see something. But I, you know, when actors are really, really good, and when they're really successful, they don't need work. And so when I said to her, "What do you think? Do you think you could do it?" I meant why don't you ever think? Because the really good actors, they wouldn't agree to do something that they didn't know they could do. No one, the actor, least of all, wants to come a cropper and look a fool and let the side down. And so she thought about it for a couple of days and she said, yeah, I think I can do it. And I knew then that no further conversation was necessary to persuade me. And it wasn't that I said, go on, do it. (laughs) <laughs> go on do us give us a touch uh, give us your best that <laughs> go on give us your best go on and no there was none of that uh, uh she just said it and I said oh okay great and so then I thought well I'm not going to mention this to anybody else unless Nina Gold really really endo- our casting director endorses it I didn't want to impose this this was just an idea I'd had but Julian would have been Nina's first choice too. And so once I had that as a go ahead, I felt very confident. So actually, it was a remarkably uncomplicated thing.
3: I'm really looking forward to talking to her about the kind of journey yeah. to finding her Thatcher as well, you know, because I just think the, the subtleties as well and the voice. And, and it's amazing how hair and makeup and costume design we take for granted, but how important, particularly with the crown, that it really. Brings so much to the character as well, and that hair and the height of it, and all that. I just think it's. But she's it's-
1: a. I mean, just from a technical point of view, the way that Gillian acts and the way that Olivia acts are about as different as you could get. And Olivia is unbelievably instinctive and is instant, right? So with Olivia, I say this as no disservice to Olivia because it, it's actually what she does. So she will. She will prepare for the first time in the taxi on the way to the shoot, okay? <laughs> she, she probably won't know where the scene comes in relation to anything else. She may even have forgotten what part she's playing. And in makeup, something will happen. And then when she gets out there on set, she is more word-perfect than anyone else and more instantly brilliant than anyone else. If you were condemned to have a one-take movie... I would recommend you do it with Olivia Colman because she is perfect from the get-go. Now, if you then, if that happens on a Tuesday and you run into her on a Wednesday and you say, do you remember the scene we did yesterday? She'll go, she'll stare at you blank, right? (laughs) So Olivia will, in that there's a part of Olivia's brain that is entirely filled by what she's doing in the moment, entirely filled. And then the minute it is gone and she has no further need for it, probably as soon as she gets in the taxi on the way back, it is drained, gone, and it's never to reappear. Gillian is completely the opposite, all right? So Gillian is the slowest cook. So Gillian will start preparing for something a year or two years in advance, you know, will just slowly start marinating. <laughs> and then as I've watched her do it on stage, for example, she, in a six-month run that she had in the West End, as the play progresses, she brings, she grows and brings more to it and brings more to it and brings more to it and brings more to it. And, and, and she has a absolutely forensic recall of everything. So, for example, when you're in post-production... Gillian will have thought about it and said, "'I remember my seventh take was weak, "'and so if you're using that, "'I'd like to do something better than that.'" And somehow her voice... So when we've come to do ADR, Gillian's voice as Thatcher, months after we stopped filming, is better than it was when we filmed. And and I think the difference in their performance brought an edge to their scenes together. And it was delightful, always, when when there were scenes between Gillian and Olivia. Mrs. Thatcher.
0: Your Majesty. Your party has won the election. It is my very great pleasure to invite you to form a government in my name. Congratulations, Prime Minister. Thank you, ma'am. Please. Your family must be very proud. You have two children. Yes, but grown up now and out of the house. And your husband is retired, is that right? Yes, but he won't get in the way if that's what you're asking. Dennis is very good at taking care of himself. His golf clubs will be in the hallway. He will come and go as he pleases. He knows how busy I will be and how hard I intend to work. To business, then.
3: We'll come back to Peter Morgan to hear more about the characters in episode one later. But first, let's pay a visit to Annie Salzberger, who's head of research on The Crown. As you'll know if you listened to the last season of this podcast, The Crown treads a fine line between fact and fiction. Yes, it is a dramatisation and we can't possibly know what was really said behind closed doors. But the show is grounded in real people and events. The research team ensured that the details are as authentic as they can be. And I asked Annie, what was going on in UK politics as Thatcher came to power? So it's
5: 1979. Britain is not doing particularly well. Jim Callaghan is in power now. He's the Labour leader who took over from Harold Wilson and he loses the election to the Tories. There's a lot of unemployment and General stagnation, I think, in Britain at the time. And people want to change. I think it's exactly what happens when, when one party stays in for too long. And she had won the leadership contest in 75 from Ted Heath. So she's now, she's been four years as leader of the opposition. And she is now the first female prime minister. When you were working out
3: how you would perceive, Thatcher and how she would be portrayed through the season was that an interesting voyage of discovery in a way because everyone has an opinion about her.
5: Yeah I mean I think all of us probably came in with some sort of expectation of how she might be portrayed. The great thing about the casting of Gillian is she's an incredibly thoughtful actress and so she came in not wanting to let any of her preconceived notions distract her I suppose and so she did I mean very rigorous research that we helped her with when she needed it. But um, she really got into her head. And I think what you see in this series so many times with the Queen is how much her biography, her childhood influenced the woman. And I think that's where we started. We really did try to grapple with how did she get here and why are her policies so divisive and why does she not back down? There's something just fascinating about that. Mm. Politics in general tends to be more consensus than what she represents. And Mm -hmm. she comes in and shakes up this Tory party and kind of rips out the core values of the sort of patrician Tory party of... We were born into privilege and we've had great educations and it's part of our jobs to take care of the common man. And she just saw that as utterly patronizing. She was the only person in that room who had been common as a child. Her dad was a greengrocer and mm-hmm. he left school at 13 but chose to take every opportunity to advance himself. And what she really believes in is this idea of free market individualism. I believe that instead of keeping everyone in their place in their class mm. which is sort of essential to the conservative party thinking that had come before her which was like everyone should be comfortable but like ultimately please don't move around too much on the in the social hierarchy <laughs> her way of thinking was the people who have the drive and the ambition should should succeed and in her mind that led to far greater social mobility because her father was 13 year old uneducated boy and yet he ended up being mayor of Grantham because he put in the work. Mm. You see that in how she approaches unemployment. And you see that in how she approaches the dole. And She has no empathy. Yeah, I mean, she she lacks an understanding of the context as to how these falls from fortune can happen. And quite, you know, kind of reductively, I suppose, it's heartless. That's how a lot of people see it. And mm. she sticks to her guns and her guns say... I'm not against people who are less well-off or less educated. I'm against how your traditional ways of helping them out are not working in my, my mind.
0: I am sick and tired of those who would seek to rationalize and make excuses for the atrocities committed by the IRA There's no such thing as political murder or political bombing or political violence. There's only criminal murder, criminal bombing and criminal violence. And I give you my word, I will wage a war against the Irish Republican Army with relentless determination and without mercy until that war is won.
3: This episode is kind of just rich with material, and on the political side of things, it's very clear and set out immediately in terms of the tensions that there are between the conflict and the growing kind of anti royal sentiment in Ireland. Mm-hmm. In terms of that, and trying to make sure that the the balance is there and the facts are there, really, where do you start with something like that in the conflicts with Ireland?
5: There have been many occasions prior to 1979 when Mountbatten is assassinated where. It's made clear that the royals represent the British establishment and they are not really welcome. Even when Margaret's in New York, all the way back in series three, there were actually anti-British monarchy protests by Irish descendants who were living in the States. But what was really worthwhile about showing this moment, obviously, it's, it's a personal loss to the royal family and it sparks Charles's decision to settle down. But it's a very clear way of trying to explain the sort of Northern Irish troubles because Mountbatten is so representative of the British military and the British establishment and the British monarchy. That's why he was a target. And he'd been going to Classybond Castle, which was actually his deceased wife's – he's a widower now – her family estate in County Sligo, which is the Republic of Ireland, not Northern Ireland – He'd been going there since 1960, after she died. Family holiday in August, bring the whole family together, generations as many as he can, and that was his annual tradition. He is killed by two members of the provisional IRA. It is intentionally an attack on the British establishment, and it is accompanied by an attack on Warren Point, which is a a military headquarters in Northern Ireland. There are 18 fatalities in total at Warren Point. It's the biggest loss of life for the British Army in a single day since mm-hmm. World War II. And coupled with the personal attack on Mountbatten, which kills not only Mountbatten himself, but his one of his grandsons, the local boy, Paul Maxwell, who tends the boat with Mountbatten. And it also kills, in hospital later, his son-in-law's mother. Okay. So there are additional casualties. And Mountbatten is killed immediately. It's recently become public that years before his assassination... Mountbatten actually spoke to the Irish ambassador to the UK about helping to secure peace in Ireland, which he believed could be brought about through the reunification of Northern Ireland and the Republic. So while he was an obvious imperialist target to the IRA, he seems to have possibly agreed with their ultimate goal. So it's difficult to sum up the IRA and the conflict of Northern Ireland. It's a very sensitive issue. So bare bones. The IRA has been around for a very long time. It's been around since 1919. When the Irish War of Independence, which is also known as the Anglo-Irish War, just like the Revolutionary War in America is known by that name, and then it's, you know. Yeah. The war ended in 1921 with a division of territory. Ireland, which is primarily Catholic, is now a dominion of Britain, but it is not under direct British administration. It will cut ties with the, with the British Commonwealth in 49 and be very much its own thing. Now, the North, which is majority Protestant, so this is a religious issue, will continue to be part of the United Kingdom. And that's how we have it now. So the IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army, is working to achieve a unified Ireland, entirely free British rule. That's always what they've been trying to do. However, the IRA that we see come out of the troubles is not the original IRA. The old IRA is 1919, and it's guerrilla forces fighting in the British anti-British uprising and playing a sort of heroic role in the Irish War of Independence. And then there's the IRA versus the provisional IRA that we get to later. So in 1921, when the war ends and the partition's initiated between the North and the South, there's also a split in the IRA. One side accepts the partition— as Mm -hmm. being sort of a practical compromise. And the other continues to be incredibly determined to unite Ireland at any cost. And at any cost, that will become through acts of terrorism in most cases. The provisional IRA that these two men were a part of are descendants of the kind of anti-treaty IRA that had been driven underground after 1922. So fundamentally, Northern Ireland is dominated by Ulster Unionist Protestant Majority. Since that partition in 1921. And there's a sort of marginalization of the Republican Catholic minority. So the Ulster Unionists are loyal to Britain and the Republicans to Ireland and sectarian violence starts around 1966. So the Troubles, Flint, start a couple years later and they run from about 68 to 98 when the Good Friday Agreement is signed. The British Army was originally called in in 1969 to restore order and in large part to actually protect the Catholic minority against loyalist violence. But they quickly become very resented and they get caught in a cycle of violence, which worsens after Britain introduces internment without trial. Yeah. And then on Bloody Sunday in 72, when the British Army kills 13 unarmed civilians. So all of this background helps you understand a little bit why Mountbatten could have been such a symbol and such a useful target for the IRA. Now that we've got some background, here's
3: Peter Morgan on centering episode one around the assassination of Lord Mountbatten.
1: There's never enough time to do all the things you want to do. And I definitely wanted to focus on the IRA. There's no version of Britain in the 80s, there's no version Mm -hmm. of that story that can be told without giving some time to the IRA. And, of course, I've not been given nearly enough time. But it it felt really good to have their voice because I wasn't going to be able to dramatise individual characters and so I decided to use it just as a voice. And the bits I'm most excited about in the first episode is that voiceover, the voice of Irish republicanism and and its anger at the British establishment.
5: But where are the tears of the British government for those men, women and children of Ireland who've lost their lives? Where is their grand funeral or solemn state occasion? Who will eulogize their deaths or pay tribute to the lives of the many Irish citizens so cruelly cut short? Like the thirteen innocent civilians murdered by the British on Bloody Sunday. Thirteen gone, not forgotten, we got 18 on my Button.
4: They that go down to the sea.
5: This is war, okay. and there will be casualties. But while the British Crown remains in Ireland, whatever blood is shed will be on their hands.
4: Make he maketh the storm to cease, so that the waves thereof are still. Then are they glad, because they are at rest. And so he bringeth them unto the haven where they would be.
3: The repercussions though that his death has on on the entire family is, is quite extraordinary in terms of the the conversations that it kind of transpires out of that tragedies is, well, is interesting. I, I sort of.
1: made up in my head whether it's right or wrong. What we know is that Mountbatten was really responsible for taking Charles to one side at precisely this point and saying, look, you know, enough already with playing the field. It's time you got married and it's time you provided an heir because it's easy now to look back and say, well, he had plenty of time. He could have gone on forever. But you don't know that, do you? You don't know that the Queen's going to live as long as she does or has done. And as the heir, I think there was some concern that he should settle down, marry the appropriate person and get on with it. And it just in my own head, I thought that that would have even greater impact on Charles if it were to come post-mortem, as it were. Mm-hmm. I think everything that's in the letter that Mountbatten writes to Charles is what... I really believe, you know, based on everything I've read and people I've spoken to, that that represents his view. We will never know if it was put into a letter and we will never know if Charles got that letter before or after Mountbatten's death, but in this particular drama, this is how I decided to deal with it. The choice of a woman was the issue around which the last Prince of Wales came to grief.
2: And it's astonishing to me that 40 years after the abdication...
1: You're making so little attempt to conceal your infatuation for another man's wife. How could you contemplate such ruin and disappointment to yourself, to your family, to me? Must I remind you again of the importance of building your destiny with some sweet and innocent, well-tempered gal, with no past, who knows the rules, and will follow the rules.
3: What a complicated character Charles yes, is! Yes,
1: yes. And his father, and the relationship between the two men—you mm. know—it is abrasive and complex, and, and prickly, and and moving. I love writing those characters.
3: He's this bachelor to start off with, and he feels really distant from the family you're kind of trying to work out whether that's his choice or whether he's just been kind of pushed away or whether he's he's running away in a way.
1: I'm sure it's both, but it's certainly the pushed away part. And it's tempting because he has this sort of excessive sensitivity. It's tempting to think of him, and I think many people have, as quite soft and indulgent and, and whatever, but to have come through what he's come through and pretty much prevailed, you know he's quite a tough character mm. he's tougher than people think I think
3: Mountbatten's death in this episode shakes the royal family and especially brings out the fractures in Prince Charles and Prince Philip's relationship which as Peter mentioned has never been easy I caught up with Joshua Connor who plays Charles and Tobias Menzies who plays Philip just before they finished filming this season it's nice to bring father and son together for a yeah. therapy session. <laughs> God, they could have done with one, mm. couldn't they? <laughs> what, you two yeah. need to sit down and oh, talk right. about Imagine stuff.
4: Imagine that session. Whoa. <laughs> no, nothing, nothing would be
2: said. <laughs> it's silent. Be a lot of silence.
3: There's a lot of brilliant moments with you two in season four where Charles has constantly been told by his dad basically what he should be doing. And it's interesting because it feels like it's the closest relationship they've had in terms of the way that the Crown has portrayed that relationship.
4: Yeah, it's been great. Yeah, yeah, it has actually. Yeah, we had this, I think that one one scene, particularly one big scene. Yeah, it was quite early on, wasn't it? Quite early on. And I remember reading those scripts and thinking the significance of Mountbatten dying is going to be huge for Charles before that particular scene was even written. And the moment of when you're like, wait, you have a father. Yes. yes, you know it's like this. I think the significance of that. Ultimately, Peter can't focus on every aspect of yeah. these people's lives, but I do feel like that's such a huge aspect that yeah. I'm glad to kind of explore it a little bit.
3: That's definitely going to be a text from your mum asking if that actually happened. I know. <laughs> that one. I definitely. know. <laughs> Did you
4: know that your mom that a that lot? Josh she texts a lot. She'll text after. me. She'll go, she'll go. I'm watching me and your dad just watch down to episode three. <laughs> Oh, I could set an alarm 50 minutes later. (laughs) Did this happen?
2: Did you get that? No. Okay. No. Um, (laughs) My family haven't massively talked about it. They've been encouraging about it, but there's no, there's not not been a huge amount of detail Mm. to the point where I sort of go, have they actually watched it? Have, they, have you guys actually watched? No, I'm sure you, you have. Should. I love you. <laughs> Please don't listen to this.
3: <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about that whole man, because he's a kind of pivot between these... Two characters, really, where the father figure to both of them?
2: So yeah, episode one, we kick off this new season with the death, the assassination of Mountbatten. And he obviously looms very large in different ways in both of our lives, in Charles' and Philip's life. He's played this incredible father figure for these two men. Philip, in a way, was quite fatherless for a lot of his childhood. And Mountbatten stepped into that. But then that, later on... Charles becomes his project. And and you get a flash, hopefully, in this scene that we've been talking about where you see Philip's jealousy, really, that he feels weirdly in competition with his own son. The parent-child dynamic is almost the wrong way around. Uh, in that scene, it's like Charles is the, is the parent and Philip is sort of weirdly childlike and kind of needy and angry and disenfranchised. And that all pivots around Mountbatten, who was a pretty complicated and powerful figure within the dynamic of that family. He did a lot of kind of wrangling and yeah. kind of manipulating, really. Yeah. He was like a powerful figure. So at the time of his death... Charles in a strange way is the Chosen One. I don't mind admitting there were times where that transference of Dickie's affection, of his care, of his love, <laughs> it might have given rise in me to a resentment. Of me? It's not, not your fault, of course. When one was as deprived of a father as I was, one can't help feeling, don't know, territorial of the next best thing. Which Dicky was.
0: To us both.
2: What are you talking about? You have a father. You have a father.
3: It's really weird because in the way that Peter's written both these characters, he writes them with a number of similarities. You know, in the terms of that Philip's jealous of Charles's relationship with Mountbatten. Charles grows jealous of Diana's relationship with the press. You know, they have these kind of similar threads that as individuals, Peter's woven into the script to show that father and son actually are more similar than... Mm. People might actually think, or, or
2: and you see. could argue that through, through uh, they both, in different ways, as absentee fathers. You know, I haven't been very present for him, and obviously I in a more obvious way. There just wasn't someone around, but though I was around, I think we've missed each other, and so Charles ends up feeling unfathered in a similar way.
4: Yeah, but there was a lot of discussion in that scene with Ben uh, yeah. before Mountbatten's funeral about how. I was yeah, trying to strong or not you are. Yeah, whether, whether yeah, Charles is kind of piercing back or yeah. not. There's something really, there's a decision Tobias made about how you're going to do the scene, which actually totally changed the power dynamics of the scene. Tell us. Um, basically, I decided <laughs> that he, is, he had been drinking that yeah. night, so...
2: Yeah. He's off kilter and you don't see Philip like that. He's not he's not a drinker, he's quite yeah. quite abstemious, really. Yeah. Held. And it
4: meant that whereas before it's like there's a fear factor. It feels like it's sort of fearful, and then by the end of the scene, it's actually this weirdly grotesque figure. Which meant that I was then able to go, actually, maybe Charles is the father to Philip in this moment and that he can be more Confident, more and as soon as we realised we were getting away the roles were reversed, then the scene was kind of oh yeah, that's yeah, what it suddenly is. a new the the
2: yeah. yeah,
3: and so when are you when's that decision made? Do you are you talking about that whilst you're
2: rehearsing the scene, or are you? No, I just came in in the morning uh, when we started and was like, I think I should be a bit a bit off a bit off kilter, a bit drunk, like I've been you know I've been having some whiskeys and your yeah, drowning my sorrows.
3: Now there's one thing that we haven't really talked about yet the beginning of the eagerly awaited Charles and Diana storyline. I asked Josh O'Connor about Charles's path towards this moment.
4: Season 3, you see the lonely man and the isolated man and what's been really cool to play now is safe in the knowledge that he's been wronged, that you feel you can be a little nastier and a little bit more selfish and yeah. for me it feels like it's a totally new character and there's lots of nods to Philip actually and seeing the kind of influence of his behaviour maybe and particularly with Charles it's been such a, an emotional up and down journey and particularly now the kind of strange thing about telling the Diana story Charles and Diana story is that because we all know the end and how tragic a story it is the moments of joy are as painful as the moments of sadness and that's been a real treat.
3: I cried reading the script.
4: It's pretty. um, (laughs) Yeah, I think. I I mean, me too. And
3: and it's not just because we know it, and we, you know, you're probably too young to even sort of remember it. But I was like, I remember, remember the royal wedding. I was five, you know, and it was the kind of fairy tale thing, and I had the doll with a dress and everything, you know. And it's kind of through my lifetime that tragedy unfolded. So you're reading that, and you know that you know the ending and stuff, but it does not stop you investing in these people and what they both went through Mm. and I think that's what's been so brilliant in the way that Peter's written Charles and that he set up all these different things that have made him such this complicated character and troubled and constantly searching and longing for things as well.
4: Yeah it perhaps would have been an easier kind of tell or an easier thing to write to make Charles a kind of pantomime villain Mm. and in some ways the media telling of it over the years has maybe been that Peter's portrayal of that was so fresh and exciting to me. One of the things that I really loved when I was reading all the scripts is there's this moment that Camilla describes Diana as being the perfect princess because she's, as soon as she's wronged, she's more powerful. She's like, she's the ultimate princess. She's the kind of fairy tale Mm -hmm. princess. And it is true that she, that I think Charles is is he's been wronged many times yeah. and unable to live the life he wants to live.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: He's put into this situation, stumbles across someone who he feels should be right and and feels like this is the, this should be the right move and this is the kind of dutiful move. And there's so much we all know, if you've followed The Crown from the beginning, that it's like it's all about duty. And so... I hope no one ever feels like Charles is in the wrong or Diana is in the wrong. But that there's an understanding that here are two people who are both mm. deeply lonely and can't help each other. When you throw in the kind of public spotlight or when you throw in the system of power and duty, mm. those relationships are fraught and for Charles, looking at his mother and knowing that he's, he's sort of second, she's the mother of, an, of a nation, and then she's the mother to he's that a son. child. Yeah, and I think the kind of difficulty of Charles going, well, if I'm going to be the father of a nation, then how important is my happiness? Is that secondary? And I think that's what falls in, oh, that's into good. this kind of difficulty with Diana, is that I think she understands that and he understands that.
0: Sorry, I'm not here. I was given strict instructions to remain out of sight. I just have to get to that room over there. And this is the only way. Your Royal Highness.
4: I haven't seen a thing.
3: Thank you, sir. Peter, we've got to talk about the introduction of Diana. Now, unfortunately, we all know how her story sadly ended. And I wanted to ask whether, knowing the end point, did that influence how you wrote her and how we would see and experience her?
1: Definitely. I think that every time... You look at Diana, no matter how young, and don't forget, in this first episode, you really get a sense of how young she was when she first met Charles. Even then, even looking at her as this little girl, that pillar in Paris, in that tunnel, is already hovering, as it were, over her. And you look at her constantly in terms of the tragedy, you know, that's coming. It imbues every every moment with her, no matter how throwaway or innocent, with a horrible sense of foreboding, really. Around the time that I wrote The Queen, the movie, people had originally asked me to write a story about the death of Diana, and I think by that what they meant was, can you tell us a story about whether she was or wasn't murdered, or can you you just do the story of the end of her life? I went away and talked to a couple of people and then thought I'd concentrate on the days after her death, because actually the days after her death effortlessly said something about the country and the impact that she made or hadn't made. And it, it polarised people again. And I thought, oh, well, that's quite interesting. It, it seems to be a snapshot of a modern Britain and a Britain that not everyone will understand. And so I didn't write her, and I felt that she was unwriteable. And so when it came to this part of history, I always thought, well, if the show does continue, how am I going to deal with it? And then finally, and I don't know if it's just that enough time has passed... I thought to myself, it's okay to write her now. It's okay for me to have a go at this. And I think given the important place that she has in British cultural life, it's okay for a dramatist to go and explore that now, I think. And there was a time where I didn't think that. And I felt that I personally wouldn't want to do it. It would be too soon. And I I wasn't sure that I could do it. But now she's become interesting to me. And maybe it's because I think enough time has passed that you can... Think of her almost in metaphorical terms or symbolical terms or, or you can use her to tell a story not just that is her story but also other stories. You mm. know?
3: Was it easy to decide how you'd introduced Diana?
1: There's no evidence to suggest that that's what the conversation was. That's, that was an act of the imagination. But, you know, there are bits that, as always, there are some dots which I ended up trying to join. And the dots that we knew were Charles was dating her elder sister. He met her and promptly went on and forgot her. She met him on that occasion and never forgot him. And so what I did was I thought, when her sister is out of the way for one second, Diana, who was, we know from accounts from all her sisters and everybody, she was called Dutch because she had a a sense of entitlement about, she thought she was exceptional and she was going to have a better, good things were going to come to her. She Mm -hmm. had a very clear sense of that as a child. She enjoyed acting, and so I put all those things together and came up with this. It's just joining the dots, really. I hope that the dots were close enough together that the act of imagination means it's truthful, even mm. if it's not. How can it be accurate? I have no idea how they, what, which room they met in, or what they said. But I hope it's entirely truthful to what they both thought and what they both felt at the time.
0: I'm Sarah's younger sister, by the way. Please don't tell her you saw me. I'll get into terrible trouble. She wanted everything to be just perfect. She wouldn't want me to scare you off. How would you do that? Well, you know. by like being a mad tree. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I won't say a thing.
0: Thank you, sir.
3: I'm Edith Bowman, and my special thanks to our guests on this podcast Peter Morgan, Annie Salzberger, Tobias Menzies, and Josh O'Connor. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and something else in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join us next time when we go behind the scenes of episode two of season four called The Balmoral Test. Both Thatcher and Diana are invited to holiday with the Royals at their Scottish retreat, but who will sink? and who will swim in the eyes of the family.
0: What do we wear?
3: What the
4: heck? Who cares?
0: Well, I care. Every house has rules, and places like this are all about what you wear and when. On the plane, you said there were tests.
5: Oh, so you did hear what I said?
0: Of course I heard what you said. I don't need a look at you to show you I'm listening to what you're saying.
5: Well, it might be nice.
0: I don't have the time to be nice.
4: Well, I'm sure to worry about it it all would be to fail the tests. 6pm is drinks before dinner. Dinner is black tie. Ergo, drinks are black tie.
0: I
3: couldn't help noticing, ma'am. You didn't bring any outdoor shoes. That's right. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts.